Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You know, I don't worry about the way the world is changing. I'm never very nostalgic about the way it used to be. It's always changing. I think the first ad week seminar I ever went to was basically about the demise of advertising. So that's 30 years ago. Once advertising's enfant terrible, now he's one of its most outspoken veterans, pushing for change in an industry being disrupted across once reliable media and demographics. Alex Boguski is ours for the hour. After these messages. This episode is sponsored by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based. For those who have more than a 401k to manage, visit goevoadvisors.com. That's goevoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, a proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide. Online at pfgc.com. Joining me from Colorado is Alex Boguski, co-founder and chief creative engineer at Crispin Porter and Boguski, where he started 30 years ago, back in Miami, my hometown as well. He launched the Truth Campaign 20 years ago. He had a hand in Burger King's famous ads. There was Microsoft. He launched the Mini Cooper in the United States, Volkswagen in the early to mid-2000s. And you returned to Crispin Porter and Boguski last year in 2018. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. So Miami, we do have Miami in common, and I read all these these stories, be it in Fast Company or Fortune, other places that profiled you, especially over the aughts, that you almost bumped into advertising by accident. I mean, your your parents were creatives. Uh, you went to North Miami High. You went to Miami-Dade Community College, and you kind of chanced into this and accidentally turned Miami into a global advertising hub before you expanded out <laughs> into Colorado. Tell me about that. Yeah, I wanted to race motorcycles. Uh, so that was my first attempt at a career was pro motocross. And and uh, at some point, uh, I had to face, I was I was the guy you watch on TV getting lapped by the really good guys. So I decided I wouldn't do that. And, uh, and I didn't really do much college. I did a little community college, like you mentioned. And, and my mom taught me how to do mechanicals, which, which was basically uh, production um, in graphic design. Uh, so that I'd always have a job. So that started it. And, and eventually I got into an ad agency kind of by accident. Uh, and yeah, you just, you know, it's, 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 if you stick around, you get promoted. That's what I always tell people. Just be there, you know, <laughs> when other people quit. Let me ask you, what did you think about advertising as an adolescent? I mean, isn't that kind of stuff that we feel compelled to kind of block out? We don't want to be tools of the ad industry or did you find did you find that you had to kind of i don't know turn to the to work for the man i would kind of try to place myself in your shoes in your teens and early 20s i didn't really think about it much you know there were there were moments uh, where i i remember seeing uh, 1984 and thinking well i didn't know that advertising could be that that's interesting and and uh i remember seeing some some honda scooter scooter work that that broke through but uh and i remember having the the uh pillsbury doughboy as a toy and i thought it was the coolest toy because it was also on tv and it was animated so um i think probably like most people i didn't think about it much we 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 had a lot of you know we're designers in the family that was sort of the trade so we had a lot of design publications around but not really advertising publications so i didn't think about it much so, Alex, what was the big breakthrough client at CPB, CP&B? I mean, it was initially Crispin and Porter, right? Crispin Porter became Crispin Porter and Boguski. It was it was Crispin, then it was Crispin Porter, then it was Crispin Porter Boguski, and and uh, 
I think it was the Truth Campaign. It was the first time that we had a decent, a really decent sized budget. We had we were working on a lot of um, bike brands, smaller bike brands, and, and things like that, which was which was fun. We learned a lot about how to market to young people, and and you know developed kind of a, a cool style. And um, and then when uh, Florida, um, because of the National Tobacco Settlement, or actually before the national one, when the state settlements were happening. Florida decided to do a a, a campaign um, because it was one of the stipulations that the that the settlement money had to be used to tell kids not to smoke. Um, that started a review process to look for an agency, and we got involved. Quickly realized that if you tell kids not to smoke, they will do the opposite. So it, suddenly, you you know, we we were pretty concerned because we found ourselves in a in kind of a diabolical plot to get children to smoke. So it's a bit of a David and Goliath thing because what we're always told about in advertising case studies is one of the most storied campaigns is Leo Burnett in Chicago with this Marlboro man and, you know, come to where the flavor is and so much brand equity put into that. I mean, I know people at Altria to this day, they kind of get teary eyed when they think about taking people to the the ranch and showing them the horses and everything. It's such a recognized, it is, it is the most recognized cigarette the world over between Philip Morris and Philip Morris International. And here you are, a small, tiny, you know, upstart in Miami originally trying to kind of throw dirt in those gears or trying to undo, to, to add jam that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we figured that uh, it would never work. There was so much money. Philip Morris has so much money, so much power, so much influence um, that, uh, I remember thinking, man, this this will never work. We did we did know that what they were doing at the time the uh, was backfiring, and and youths uh, youth uh, tobacco usage was at the highest it had been in twenty years. Um, so yes, well, some of the stuff we did spoofed the Marlboro Man. We put body bags on the backs of horses um, and had them gallop through the Utah de- desert. Were you guys behind that campaign in Midtown Manhattan by uh, Grand Central Station with the body bags outside the Altria building? Yeah, that was one of that was so when the when uh, Florida launched and it quickly it was it was heavily researched and and it, and it quickly showed that there was a lot of potential with this anti-industry strategy, which was not an approved strategy by the CDC at the time, but it became approved uh, and as we as the the tobacco companies couldn't afford to do state by state, so they came up with this idea: let's settle, you know, and do a national settlement with all the states. And um, and that pool of money created uh, uh, funds for the national truth campaign. And uh, the spot you're talking about with with where we dropped off the body bags, um, I think, was one of the first spots, if not the first spot, to launch the campaign. So we don't see that uh, much anymore. We had Robin Koval on the show and, um, you know, shift ahead 20 years up until I, th- I think the youth smoking rate of actually combustible cigarettes is at an all time low. Uh, but we're going to get into this other bet noir now that at the same time, uh, Juul has had a meteoric rise and Philip Morris USA yeah. and Altria acquires Juul, this revolutionary kind of freebase product that gets the nicotine salts to the to the developing brain faster than any cigarette ever could have. But was this essentially mission accomplished up until two years ago? Did you go into high schools and people do not smoke cigarettes much anymore? Yeah, I mean, rates with youth and, and, the, and the generation that grew up with the Truth Campaign are crazy low, you know. Um, 
down to a place that that made sense and i think we all were feeling that uh against all odds that uh that we had won that particular battle you know it fell from the mid-teens it fell from the mid-teens if you're talking your 10th or 12th graders um in the mid to late 90s when truth kind of kicked off not necessarily correlation and causation perfectly but it's now in the mid single digits combustible cigarette usage at high yeah. schools at a record low yeah um yeah and so you you had you had accomplished so much emanating out of this. I mean, then we talk about Burger King. Uh, we talk about the cover of Fast Company. Can you make Microsoft relevant? I think I read that in 2008. You launched the Mini Cooper in the United States. What was that like taking this? I, I, I think your headquarters was in the old Mayfair uh, Mall in Coconut Grove and then going expanding to Boulder and then becoming a multinational effectively with what, a, a billion dollars in billings? Yeah, probably. Um, what was it like? It was it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we did many after truth. That was sort of taking the things that we had learned and and uh, and talking to audiences from from the truth campaign and uh, applied that to to bringing the the smallest car to America, which was sort of a dream come true, you know, creating the SUV backlash and making small cool again. Uh, those were yeah, those were really fun times in Burger Burger Alex, King. Let me ask. Let me ask something that I don't understand. There's always a kind of a clubbiness where whether board members are involved. If somebody is on the board of, of what's you know then Philip Morris USA. It's now it's Altria. They tend to be on the boards of other consumer packaged goods companies. How do you how do you make yourself a kind of a non toxic ad option after working on something like that? Do you know what I'm saying? Like with the, with the body bag campaign, for example. That how do you make yourself uh, someone that other companies that have to deal with these people at the country club level or at the board level are happy to engage and, and offer billings to? I don't think you do. So how did that work with, say, a Burger King? That Burger King is not getting suasion? I have no idea. I mean, you'd have to ask them that. But but there's certainly clients that you're not going to have if you are are doing a campaign like the Truth Campaign. Um and that's part of the equation. But I've always felt like, you know, my God, there's so many, so many clients out there. There's so many business people out there that it's, it's ridiculous that you, you know, the notion that you, that you need to be for everybody. So now, you know, we're, and we're going to get into the whole panoply of tobacco things. You have amazing developments. Uh, CVS took the lead, I think a year, year and a half, two years ago. It's called CVS Health on kind of quitting cigarettes and actually using its suasion to disengage with service providers to the tobacco company and other ad agencies with the tobacco company. You see that the, the worm has truly turned. And then you see headlines like in Fortune magazine, why can't other drugstores quit cigarettes, pointing out Rite Aid and, and Walgreens. Um, it's, uh, you know, cigarette sales in all fell to 252.7 billion sticks in 2017 from 293 billion in 2012, according to Euromonitor International. It's definitely a, a sector that has peaked. And we see this headline this week in that there's unanimity in the Senate to increase the smoking age from, you know, 18 nationally to 21, which I'm surprised that there wasn't unanimity 30 years ago. Uh what are your what are your kind of a, a objectives now with kind of the sector clearly in decline? decline. Uh, it's a legacy product. We're going to get into Juul, but what's left to do? Well, I think that it's you know given the fact that you you can't market it, you can't use mass marketing techniques to to make it cool. There's not going to be a new Marlboro Man, um, and uh, I think it's I think it's probably in the space that it it should occupy. 
you know, we, with truth, we were very careful and always said we're not anti-smoking and we're not anti-smoker. If, you know, even if you're underage, if, if you just make that decision, we just want everyone to have all the information about the product and also the industry. And why would an industry, you know, work so hard to get you to try something? Well, once you understand that, a lot of people decide that's probably not for me. The I just want to make a point on the on the smoking age because Juul yeah. is advertising the the uh, that they want to raise the 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 age. The age has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't surprise me that they're you know they're they're trying to look like like that's the responsible thing to do, but it's not difficult for twelve year olds to get it now when when the legal age is eighteen. It won't be difficult for twelve year olds to get it when the legal age is twenty one. The 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 real issues are they should not be able to advertise it. The the you know the the uh, rules around advertising tobacco are very different than the rules around advertising jewel. In fact, the only the only real regulations are that it has to have the warning label. Um, but they're using mass market media, uh, and uh, and that's it's 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 a huge part of why you know everyone likes to say it's social media that's making it blow up. Well, if you're out here, it's on the radio all the time. Hmm. I mean, in fairness, it is one of the most efficacious, uh, you know, alternative inventions by the industry as a whole. I mean, it came in out of left field from Stanford, the Juul vaping device. I speak to veteran smokers who say it was such a uh, – I was so skeptical when I tried it, but I found that after two weeks, I no longer, you know, crave the cigarettes. I was tapering down. It's enormously uh, helpful in getting a person off the traditionally combustible, fully carcinogenic standard that they've been smoking for decades. The problem is how many new people are you, by default, um, bringing into the fold? Right, right. I mean, if if it really was that kind of device, if that's the if that's what you're trying to do, there's ways to advertise only to smokers. But here's my thing, Alex. Um, when um, well, that's that's my thing. I yeah. don't know what you're. I mean, that's no, no, no. important. I wanna I wanna unpack. I wanna unpack. People this. People are not really paying attention to that. It's really important. I wanna unpack this because it is very important. When Altria, uh, back in December, the parent of Philip Morris took a 35 percent stake in Jewel, valuing it at 38 billion dollars, by far the biggest acquisition it ever made. And you were the first to kind of hit this on, and I saw it in all places on LinkedIn. You would not make an investment in something by design that was just sunsetting, that was there to help people taper off the product. Uh, we have something in finance called terminal value. I know it sounds like a, a, a morbid pun in this case, but you make an investment like this hoping that there's growth, that it can expand out yeah. to it. You're not trying to buy something at its top. So yeah. uh, Altria is not going to go out and, and value something at $40 billion, take a third stake in it, maybe consolidate the whole thing, if by design that entire sector is going to go away in 10 or 15 years. Unpack that for me. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I've I spent the last eight years just in, in investing and, and uh, no one from an angel investor to a venture capital to private equity is looking for a a business model that puts themselves out of business and and that you know is what they that's what they suggest their business is right we get you off of cigarettes and then slowly you taper off and you're no longer using jewel but the reality is it is a, a the, the a, a dream come true for the tobacco industry who, who essentially said long ago we're in the the nicotine delivery device business we're not in the cigarette business and so 
technology has now come along and, and created the absolute best nicotine delivery device. Of course, they're investors. Of course, they're interested. And, and if anyone knows whether this scales, it's them. They know it scales. And they love the moment that they're in right now where they're unfettered in terms of regulation. The, the only people that manage their advertising spend are Facebook and Google, who have, as, as, as companies, have elected to say, you can't advertise this here. Like they, they see it as that dangerous and, and problematic that they won't sell advertising to, to, uh, to that industry. But television, fine. You know, they're on TV, they're on the radio, they can be on billboards. There's no other regulation. Up until recently, you had a skeptic in Commissioner Gottlieb at the FDA who stepped down. Do you think that this administration, I mean, Donald Trump is himself a teetotaler. <laughs> I wonder how serious yeah. it is about getting in front of this. You saw Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader from Kentucky, say, I know it seems like an unusual thing for a, a Republican senator from Kentucky to come out and say that I want to get ahead of youth smoking, but vaping is a national epidemic and it affects tobacco farmers' kids too. Mm-hmm. Well, if the if what they were talking about is stopping the advertising, right? Stop the incredible potential to expose everybody with mass market advertising, I would think that it's more serious. But what they're talking about is raising the age three years, an age limit that it has nothing to do with how this stuff is getting distributed. It's getting distributed by people who are buying it online, kids that can buy it online. I mean, when they when they when they task kids with here's your parents credit card, go buy these online. No one fails. The age is 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 a misdirect, honestly. It's it's the industry trying to get you to look at the wrong things. The industry is saying, look at the social media. Like, boy, we got to figure that out. You know, that's 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 where everyone's getting this information. Oh, look at this age limit. Let's let's raise that up. That'll be responsible. They're not saying stop us from advertising. Now, unfortunately, I work in an industry where no one thinks they're susceptible to what we do. Right. Everybody's like, no, advertising doesn't affect me. You know who it affects the most? The people who don't think it affects. Mm. Like, if if you're sure that it ain't affecting you, it's certainly affecting you. You better be open to to the fact that media shapes your world, and all sorts of media shapes your world, including advertising. Um, and uh, and they are spending, I you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars annually right now, and no one's paying attention to that. And that's why the industry is so excited about this window in time. If you're Altria, boy, wouldn't you love a year or two years where you could bring the Marlboro Man back on TV? Wouldn't you love, you know, like that's that's what they've got right now. And they've got also the perfect device, the device that they dreamed of that brings you into the family. And that's what the research is showing. It's 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 that you you may move from one nicotine delivery device to the other, but but kids and adults who start vaping also start smoking. Now, they don't smoke all the time, but when they can't get a cartridge or there's some interruption to the supply, you're addicted to nicotine. And so you'll chew, you'll, chew, you'll use, use any, you, you put the patch on, you'll grab the gum because you need nicotine. And, and it, is, it, is one, it is one product that the, that the industry delivers in many different ways. And I think they're excited about some of the other new ways that are coming through technology as well. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Alex Boguski, veteran ad exec. He's co-founder and chief creative engineer at Crispin Porter Boguski, where he started 30 years ago, and he helped launch the Truth Campaign 20 years ago. Um, under your direction, sir, CPB 
grew to more than 1,000 employees with offices in Miami, Boulder, L.A., London, and Sweden with annual billings over a billion dollars. I do wonder, uh, you know, just to kind of tie up the tobacco conversation here, Philip Morris International, which is the the more kind of daring cousin that broke up from Philip Morris USA, and there is chit-chat about maybe them merging together. You saw the John Oliver skit a couple of years ago about the the nefarious things that PMI does and market outside of schools in Indonesia and Malaysia. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. They, their CEO came out and said, they've been very forward, and I don't know if you you can believe them in the front door saying this, that we envision a cigarette-less future, a future without cigarettes. And um, various, uh, you know, TV correspondents and mag- magazine correspondents kind of taken that press release and and believed it outright. Yeah, I listen. Uh, why would they not? I mean, they have technology that they can sell now that could replace the technology that they used to sell. So, I, I, again, you know, they they're they're part of a system where you grow the tobacco, you extract the nicotine, and then you deliver the nicotine, and you could deliver it a lot of different ways. I don't think they care about. The, the the tobacco plant being part of the consumer product, I don't think that's the, their concern. And and again, like if you go back to 1950s, there were ads where your doctor said uh, of all the brands you should smoke, you should smoke Camel. Um, we we always believe that the current solution and technology and our age and our era has figured it out. So is it safer? It's definitely safer. There's no doubt. Do we know what it really does? No. Do we know what it does to to a young uh, mind and a young brain to have this much nicotine, potentially three times as much as they might get smoking? No, we don't really know. We won't know for 20 years. But but I think we should we should uh, err on the side of precaution. And what I what, my only beef, I I think the technology is you know for adults who need to get off of cigarettes i think it's wonderful but but when you're but when you're doing things and you're employing tactics that the industry has employed over and over and over to 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 get youth to to smoke because it, right i mean you know this but no one starts smoking over the age of 21 no mm-hmm. one really starts vaping the numbers are infinitesimally small you couldn't you couldn't justify the ad spend that they that they have currently with the with the number of adults that they that they that are choosing to to vape it, that just that again doesn't add up so just like the story of this being a product that puts itself out of business and that's why Altri invested and that's why so many other people are so excited that it that's not true this this is a growth industry it is a it is a it is a product that a lot of people are betting big on and they're betting big that they can addict a generation, not unlike the tobacco industry did in World War II with free cigarettes. I mean, they got pretty much all the GIs to come back addicted to tobacco. And we saw what happened. You see these photos of GIs with lucky strikes. Yeah. And their kids well, they were free. Them. Yeah. They were free. And you can, you can give free samples when you have an addictive product. <laughs> you know, lots of industries with addictive products give free samples. Alex, let me so shift. Not legal. You, let me let me shift you, Alex, to the uh, your industry writ large in 2019. There's a tremendous amount of fear and loathing about 
Um, where advertising goes at the magazine industry is is an utter you know collapse. My old industry, we saw uh, Money Magazine printing its final uh, print issue this year. Uh, Fortune was acquired by others. Meredith bought People Magazine, and Time was bought by others. Various magazines have folded. We've seen rampant cord cutting. Uh, the the ad trend. I mean, radio uh, FM radio bankruptcies. And I think about all this when I'm on YouTube with my kids. And I got to tell you, John Senna, the actor, I love him, but I'm annoyed mm-hmm. to no end with, uh, you know, um, hefty trash bags makes me watch this guy for six seconds. And do you know anybody that doesn't look for the skip button immediately on YouTube? Is that not a metaphor for kind of advertising broadly in 2019, trying to hold on to these nickels? It's the same as it's always been, I think. Um, right. It used to be you'd go and you'd, and you'd um, take a tinkle during the commercials. So, but sometimes there'd be uh, commercials that you liked enough that you'd stick around for, you know, that skip button is definitely something that, uh, that we all employ and, uh, and we, and we love hitting. Um, sometimes it doesn't matter cause it's designed to do it, do, do its job in less than six seconds. Um, but we like the, but- how can they do their job in less than I'm annoyed. I'm actually annoyed at hefty for that. Well, I mean, you're talking to me about the thing that you're annoyed at, but, but you know, the question is, are you so annoyed that you'll never buy hefty or are you just, <laughs> no, I'm, I am so annoyed that I will pay YouTube for a premium YouTube red subscription. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. serious. But, you know, but, just like Spotify, I don't have to listen to ads. Just like Netflix, I don't have to listen to ads. Just the yeah. various, you know, uh, freemium model things right now that kind of take that noise away. Well, and I think that that could be part of it. Um, some people are willing to do it and other people aren't. I, I don't know the answer. You mean, where is it going? Will everyone pay the premium? No, why Why do they, Alex, why do they think that's effective? You give these lectures, you know, you give these impassioned presentations on LinkedIn, by the way, which LinkedIn is just so much irrelevance and platitude in his stuff. Your stuff, by the way, I'm going to plug it, is so good. No, thanks. I mean, just go follow Alex Boguski on LinkedIn. Watch his testimonials, his mea culpas, his exhortations to young advertising talent to be that come from all sorts of industries. But I, I, I do think about that. Like, John Senna, you're a great actor, a great activist. You're beloved in China. If I have to watch you come down a, 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 a you know a checkout line and I'm waiting for that six-second thing, it only engenders ill will toward that brand. But in your world, you're saying an impression is an impression, even if it happens in six seconds. I think we all complain about commercials, too. I call them those things. I'm like, oh, these things are on, you know? Like, so... Um... The fact that they the fact that they suck is actually um, and are annoying is great for for people like us who try to make them less annoying. It, and you know it's funny. I'm just realizing if it's if it's uh, if it's hefty and it's happening to you on YouTube, they are specifically buying you because I've never I've never seen the the commercials you're talking about. Um, I get I get a different set because when you know how it works when you're watching a video that commercial or that plug isn't in front of that video, that that space and you as a viewer go up for bid in the milliseconds, right? Before when you hit play, and then that then that um, that spot is downloaded. So, yeah, Hefty should know that you're really annoyed because are you? Yeah, that's what I don't. I mean, you. no, Google <laughs> yeah. should know. Google, which owns YouTube, which it bought, you know, one of these transformational acquisitions in 2006, was it? I find none of these are relevant to me. None of these are germane to me. It, you know, part of it, and this I think is going to change, part of that is because although the data is really good and they probably know, uh, they have a pretty good idea of what you'd want to see, 
the the larger advertisers have to overspend to get the number of eyeballs. So and and not enough of the smaller advertisers have started to use this technology. I think what you'll see probably in the next five years is you'll see more relevant stuff from smaller advertisers that really just wanted to talk to you and had something you were interested in. But right now it's not happening. You know, I I I do notice that like, God, why am I seeing the Chevy ad over and over? I just bought a car. I know they know that. Um, but it's just they're buying gross impressions. And it's it's more of a media buyer satisfying a client's objectives with digital, but it will change. But how does that work? A media buyer, ultimately the client, whether the CMO or someone there has to say, show me efficacy, show me that this resulted in click-throughs. I mean, I always thought that the economics of the the click model were kind of really questionable and subjective. In another case, Alex, I can't stand it when I look up a pair of shoes on uh, say Zappos or something, and a, retargeting, retargeting. You don't like retargeting, yeah? Well, no, that that ad follows me around. If I don't open an anonymous window, like does Google think does Google think that's a good idea? And I say, I don't like this ad. It's annoying. It's offensive. Whatever, whatever. Okay, we'll stop trying to show that ad, which you don't. It follows me around on Instagram and everywhere. How is that not patently, you know, Orwellian creepy to people that people sit around and say, no, don't do that. No, I think it is very creepy. I think we're going through a phase where we're realizing, you know, I, I don't know if this has happened to you, but sometimes we feel like we have conversations and then ads about things we talked about show up right now. You know, we have a, we have an Alexa in the house and we wonder, is Alexa, you know, listening? I don't think it is. I've never been exposed to anything like that in terms of, hey, you could buy this. So I imagine no other advertiser has either. But yeah, it's just we're in a creepy phase for sure. But it's but it's also creepy and it's annoying because it's not really as dialed as we like sure. it to get. You're right. The the clients, why would they want to talk to somebody and annoy somebody? They don't. Why would they want to waste money on someone who's not interested? They don't. But there's still the need to like get a certain amount of gross impressions. So there's there's some some just random business uh, operations that are getting in the way of a real optimized experience still. Talk to me, Alex, about the the general composition of the the chief marketing officers and the C-suite people that you're working with right now. That you know, I I find that legacy people were always talking about. Can you get me a, a, a get me in the New York Times magazine? Get me in People magazine? Get me on? Uh, I, I mean, you know, what was it, Ellen? The Ellen DeGeneres show. Are you seeing a handing off to millennials? Who are saying no? We we need something more cutting edge, something that's going to get through to a generation that specifically does not want to be marketed to. I've seen you kind of hint at this in some of your videos on LinkedIn. It takes it takes a handing off generationally from these people that were steeped, you know, working up from copywriter to whatever it was in the 1980s and going through X, Y, and Z to finally become a chief marketing officer. But now younger people are the the ones who are being targeted, and so shouldn't they be the ones in the CMO suite? Yeah, there's always a lag on that where the the people who are experiencing things and have a new idea about how it ought to work just aren't they don't have the power, like you say. Um, so, yeah, it, it you know, it uh, we've seen it with other generations and, and it changes the shape of, of marketing. I think right now things are moving so fast that that lag is is maybe more apparent. And, and it is something that uh, probably brands have to pay attention to. More than they are right now, but I don't. I, I I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure how you do that because they're just. <laughs> they're, they, there'd be a lot of twenty, 
24 year olds in, in the C-suite, which is just tough. Well, also, what do you what do you do with the fact that and, and we'll, we'll say this ad nauseum when I had to lecture a 20 something class in a comm school, literally nobody there had a cable subscription or a TV. Yeah, that they do watch things on YouTube. They do watch things on Netflix and Hulu and Spotify. Uh, maybe they share a Spotify login with some other people, and it's kind of the ad-free experience. Where can you safely and reliably get compelling ads to 20-somethings today? Is it Instagram? Is it Facebook? I mean, talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that it's all those places. And uh, so so if if you're Google and and Facebook and and uh, um, Instagram being part of Facebook, you get a lot of you get a lot of budget now, but the reality is, I think that those two combined make up for only about thirty percent of the digital ad spend, mm-hmm. um, and and that uh, programmatic is what 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 the rest of it is, and that's you know every video that you see outside of those platforms and every and every banner that you see out outside of those platforms. So I don't. It's not really difficult to reach people. What's different is there's not is many there's hardly any shared campfires right gone are the days where you you know everyone would watch the same sitcom and they'd see the same commercials and they'd come back and they'd talk about those commercials or those ads um and so the the uh the stuff that breaks through is much more when companies actually do something right so that they actually um and and it and it and it was much more uh, along the lines of like, what good are you doing? But but now it's not so much like, what good are you doing? But how are you as a brand, uh, a, an advocate for 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 me in in this category? So that's how we look at you know the work w- that we do with with brands like Domino's, mm. where we'll you know pave streets. Now, obviously, you pave streets. It's good for any. Um, pizza joint where you're picking up the pizza but but we know that that we advocate for people who love pizza and love the control of picking it up themselves so that kind of campaign makes sense better brands i think are taking that advocacy those things that they actually do in the real world and blending it with their marketing and if you want to call it advertising so that those stories are are parallel um so instead of, hey, we give to charity and we don't, you know, and, and then we do one commercial to tell you about that, they, it's, it's much more about the advocacy in, in, your, in your vertical. Uh, and that's what I think, you know, millennials are looking for is you got to be, you, it, you can't be all talk. Like, what do you do that's different? Um, and that's fun because much of what we've always done as an agency is work on the the apps and the digital experience and and the in store and the and you know uh the the uh uh with many it was like we basically designed all the different roofs that wasn't part of the launch that was something that came with the advertising all the customizable graphics like that's that's how we think how can you be interesting as a company it can't be just your advertising Hmm. What about the business model issue when you have all of these regional papers? I mean, you've had tumult in in, in Denver, for example, in Boulder, and in, in yeah. other areas there where um, mega regional papers. I mean, the the New York Times has been inoculated; it has made the successful transition to a subscriber model. The L.A. Times has been bought by a billionaire. The Boston Globe has been, but there are all these other players out there that have been completely disrupted by initially Craigslist and then the duopoly of Google and Facebook. That 
they're the ones, they're the places where you go to search for these things and they collect the toll. It's not the content maker. Have you been tapped as an advisor to these places to kind of say, how do you get in front of this or how do you rescue? I mean, it's something that you are very simpatico with is content makers getting paid for their content. And it's something that newspapers have had an existentially impossible time with over a decade. It's fun. I'm so glad you said Craigslist because it used to be that people thought that there was a different story with newspapers. And I've been saying for years, no, it's Craigslist. Like it's it's not the free content that's out there. It's not the free news because and I and you know my experience was this was having the Miami Herald as a client, and all the the only thing they ever want us to advertise were classifieds because that's where they made their money. And uh, yeah, you're right. Craigslist just destroyed them. I don't you know. I don't worry about the way the world is changing. I'm never very nostalgic about the way it used to be. It's always changing. I've been in an industry my whole life that was essentially, I think the first ad week seminar I ever went to was basically about the demise of advertising. So that's 30 years ago, right? I mean, it's been going away since I've been in it. And the only thing that's happened is it's grown. So I just don't, I don't sweat it. And I know things are going to change. And and what I worry about is just people and their jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, there's 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 not many coal miners in America, um, and there's probably not that many people working in the classifieds at, at newspapers either. I hope that they're finding other uh, employment, um, and that's the that's the that's that's way beyond advertising or marketing. That is something that we're in every sector we're we're grappling with right now. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Alex Boguski. He's the veteran ad executive who's now chief creative engineer at Crispin, Porter, and Boguski, which he co-founded. You've seen his name mentioned alongside massive campaigns for Burger King, the Truth Campaign Against Cigarettes, uh, Microsoft. He helped launch the Mini Cooper in the United States. There was Volkswagen. You talked about Domino's and the pothole thing, which I don't even know how you got cities to kind of say, okay, Domino's, you can go out and fill potholes. But yeah, walk me through something like that. How do you how do you pitch that? How do you come up with something like that? And then how do you get it uh, cleared for execution with cities and the company and the ad buyers? Yeah, it's a great question. It's it's uh, it's definitely a lot more work than trying to sell a thirty second spot that people are going to skip after the first six seconds. And uh, the uh, the the job of of a of a creative director here is is very different than just thinking of advertising. We're we're thinking of activations. You know, what are the things that we can do to essentially delight um, the Domino's customer and maybe even just the the pizza enthusiasts, you know, the latest thing we did is we actually uh, um, give rewards and uh, frequent frequent user rewards for people, even if they are eating someone else's pizza. They can take a picture of it, and our app will give them rewards for that. Um, I I don't know that the process is that much different. It's that it's, it's all the same kind of people getting into a room together and and figuring out whether it's really worth doing, and then uh, and then well. The part where you work with cities and everything, that is that is funny. You call them up and they're like, you what? Why? And it and you it takes some persistence. But cities are cities are looking for help. So it it uh it ultimately it ultimately worked and we've paved a lot of potholes. So wait, I I want to be in that room where you're presenting it to Domino's management. I mean, do you fly out to Michigan and say, We're gonna do this, we're gonna fill potholes? And they'd be like, uh, you know, is there like fear and loathing on this flight from Denver to Detroit? Like it's totally going to bomb with them? 
No, you know, we always come with, there's a, there's usually a lot of ideas, but, uh, but it, you know, you're working off of a strategy and, and, uh, people who are, are, um, picking up pizza versus delivery, right. They're very concerned about, um, controlling that experience. And so once you establish that strategy, what are the things that go wrong for those folks? Um, and then, and then what can we do to, to, to fix that? And to, even if you, even if we don't fix your pothole, you know, that we get it right. Right. Um, so it's pretty much just showing the idea, talking it through, killing a whole bunch of other ideas and, and then moving forward. Do you throw a massive Super Bowl party and invite a bunch of people over? Like they just want to, you can almost live stream Alex Boguski's reactions to these things. Like I was, I was wondering oh, when I was God. thinking about my year ahead guest list, how you would have reacted to the Budweiser Game of Thrones matchup. Like that would have taken an, an enormous leap of faith for the agency of record to convince this like old, you know, staid multinational beer company that, yeah, go ahead and assassinate your brand and make a violent campaign because it's going to be the most talked about ad in this year's Super Bowl, you know the I the funny thing about me, and maybe it, maybe it makes sense for what we've done. So, as an agency, we're known for disrupting disrupting the the industry and and basically saying moving advertising into new areas and doing different things. And and uh, it, I you ask at the beginning of the show, like what what was your relationship to advertising? I think my relationship was the same as, as a, as a young guy who didn't give a as it is now. Um, which is, I don't really, I don't really care about it. Uh, I'm not a fan of it. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think about using it to help businesses or something like truth, truth, achieve a certain goal. So to me, the, the thing that's, that, that, that unlocks is I don't get attached to any current state. And so it's easier to innovate on a thing that you're not fundamentally in love with. Mm. Um, so I, I don't watch the Super Bowl. I don't watch the Super Bowl really? ads. I, you know, yeah, I don't care. I don't care. And, and, and I think that puts me in the same mindset as most, most, uh, consumers, which is I just now Super Bowl is a little different cause they're fun and it's like a little cultural moment, but yeah, we just don't care. It's not that high up on our priorities. So knowing that no one cares, I think what what advertisers do sometimes, they're so in love with what they do that they think people care and they start to um, behave in a way which is really counterproductive, just assuming that if I do this beautiful little film, people are going to appreciate it as much as I do. And that's just, that's never going to happen. They don't care. They're actively trying to avoid you. What can you do to actually give them some value, actually do something that's going to make them pay attention because it's either so honest or so delightful or so helpful. Um, and that's a higher bar. So it, for me, maybe that's my, if I have a secret weapon is that I just don't care. And how do you, how do you, how do you come? you know, pass that on to prospective clients and not look dismissive because they seem to believe that this is the way it's done. I want to be mentioned in Can Lions. I want to be mentioned in the advertising, the Super Bowl rundown. I mean, there's a, this is the way it's done and you have to kind of pry it from their cold hands to convince them to kind of disrupt it and do something else. I think that if you're a CMO, you know that you can get by for a quarter or two on a Can Lion, but, but you're getting fired if business isn't good. 
So, mm. you know, our focus is, is moving the business. We, you know, we, we win lots of awards, um, and always have, I think prior, right before I left, we did, had a streak of six years as the world's most award-winning agency. So we, you know, we do that, but we do it almost incidentally as we're working really hard to move the business. Um, so yeah, I think CMOs get it. Like if you've got an idea that's going to move the business, that is a much bigger deal than having a film that they think might get something it can. Hmm. Alex, uh, when you were on your your leave from Crispin Porter and Bogusky, your sabbatical. No one, no one likes to get fired. No one sure. likes to get fired, in my opinion. <laughs> you ever been fired from a yeah, job? It's yeah, terrible. I have. I have been. Yeah. It's terrible, but it's it's really sure. defining. Could you tell me how you became it an is. advisor to Lyft? How that happened? Was that was that kind of in your um, vision quest phase away from CPNB? It was right before. It was right after. Yeah. So I start. I was. I was giving a. Um, um, a talk about sort of megatrends that were going to change things. Um, and, uh, and in that talk, I talked about different companies that were taking advantage of some of this. And, and, uh, and I mentioned Lyft, which was called Zimride at the time. And, uh, and I said, boy, I've been thinking about somebody ought to do this. And, you know, I thought it would be Google, but here's this company and, and they're matching people who are going the same direction so that they can take one car instead of two. And, uh, and the founder saw that and said, Hey, why don't you come out and, and, uh, love to meet you. And I was, or I was probably just in Palo Alto. I went to meet with them. There were five people total in the company at the time, uh, I met John Zimmer, who who uh, who we've become good friends, and 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 he reminded me the other day that I actually helped them put together an IKEA table when I visited. <laughs> like that's how early stage it was. I was in, I was underneath the table screwing in legs. So uh, yeah, so wait, did you did now. you break out a checkbook? Did you know that this was kind of a disruptive thing? It was going to barrel towards a massive IPO? No, I I became an advisor. And, uh, and so got involved through, through that. And I had never been an advisor. Uh, so I didn't even know what that was. They said, would you like to be an advisor? And, and, uh, it's a very common thing in, in startups and, in uh, Silicon Valley, but, uh, it was new to me and, uh, it was great. Super fun. Um, I don't do a lot. I mean, we're friends and we talk, talk all the time, but I don't do a, a lot of real advising now. I think the, 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 the most advising I did was really through the transition from Zimride to Lyft mm. and that, you know, relaunching uh, uh, the whole thing as a new brand and around the app. Would you tell me about Crazy Bat Blink Ventures? <laughs> yeah, we... Um, bat Beep, doing a bunch bat of, beep uh, Ventures. You know, we have yeah, the FCC, the yeah. FCC to worry about. So <laughs> You can't say that? Okay, okay. We could beep uh, it if you it? want you to can, say it. Yeah, I'll say it. It's it's Bat <laughs> Crazy Ventures and... and uh, I started doing angel investing when I uh, left the agency world uh, and had a lot of fun with that. But at some point, it gets just complicated because you've got so many things going. And I had I had too many things going. And friends said, why don't you start a fund? I resisted it for a long time, but eventually uh, uh, started a fund, met, uh, met my partner. Uh, we talked about it's early stage tech, essentially, which... I think is kind of crazy. And, and I said to him, boy, 
you know, we we're grappling for names. I said, should we just call this like crazy ventures? And he said, I've always wanted a firm called bad <laughs> crazy ventures. So I said, well, now's probably the time. So that's where it came from. And it's funny because even the most conservative people love getting our hats and our, you know, our t-shirts. Uh, and, uh, and, and every company, we always say you could just put BCV and they're like, no, no, we want to spell out the whole thing on the website. So it's, I think people people get it. Alex, in the 10 minutes or so that we have left, I'd love for you to to impart this advice. And there's something you you give off this empathy. It's so empathic on LinkedIn, uh, which again is not mm. a you know must-see TV channel by any means, but I love some of the stuff no. that you do out there. You gave a mea culpa about being wrong about uh Jules intentions, you uh, you know, yeah. about profiting off of this and various things that you say. And I imagine, I cannot imagine how many perspective, say, ad students or ad agency people or ad executives get in touch with you in the course of a week. And if you sit back at night and go to bed, like, one, what you would tell yourself at age 20, 22, and what you would tell people in this extremely, like, convulsing, changing industry right now? You know, I don't know. I, I'm so careful with advice. It, and and the reason why, and I'll tell a quick story. I was... Um, it, finishing up my motocross career and wondering what to do. And I thought I'm going to go in the air force and then I'll learn to fly and then I can become a commercial pilot. So Chuck Porter, who is the Porter and Crispin Porter Bogusky, his brother was a commercial pilot. And I sat down with him and I said, Hey, uh, I'm thinking about this route. And he said, Oh my God, don't do it. And, and I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, I, I hate it. And, and so, yeah, I'm 17 years old and still in high school, I decided, okay, well, I ain't going to do that. I don't know what I'm going to do now, but I'm not going to do that. So, so he, uh, so later, maybe five years later, no more, 10 years later, I met him and I said, man, remember that conversation where you steered me away from being a commercial pilot? He's like, no, why'd I do that? And I'm like, oh, you just said that, you know, it wasn't, wasn't great. Not, not really enjoying it. He's like, I love it. I love my life. <laughs> Um, I, I fly, you know, I've got seniority. I fly three days. I'm off five days. I'm mostly in Hawaii. You know, it's incredible. And now I'm in advertising, right? So I'm like, you ruined my life. Um, so I'm very careful about giving advice when people say it. And the other thing I usually do is I say, you know what you need to do. And you just know that it's kind of hard but you should do what you know you need to do. And people, it's crazy because obviously I'm barely saying anything. Everyone writes back, oh my God, you're right. I totally know. I, all right, all right. Oh God. Because what they're really looking for in advice is a way, usually what they're looking for is they're looking for a way to like cheat the system, hmm. right? Like I know that like hard work and persistence, I know that works, but you know, what else you got? Because I, that seems... Like it's going to take too long and be too hard. So I'm really looking for something fresh. And no so one which, really which, has which that greenhorn, advice. Which greenhorn does it right? I mean, in your in your 30-year career now, there are people who've come up to you. Has somebody been audacious enough to get a foot in the door to get a meeting with you? I mean, I'm reminded of yeah. the woman in business school who um, – even after graduation, she wanted a job with a very exclusive hedge fund in Boston. It would not give her the time of day. They sent her the form letters and everything. And she actually went to the waiting room and said, I am not leaving at least until you give me a hearing. And that's actually what they were waiting for her to do. 
Yeah. Do you see anything like that, that or any, story. any candidates who've come by and actually who've done that and can now tell great war stories after the fact? You know, like the Willy Wonka Absolutely. moment where, you know, I refuse to leave. Yeah. Well, it, that's it. I, I will give that advice. And that's a perfect example. What what the mistake that I see most people doing that you couldn't do back in the day, you couldn't make the mistake of sending out a thousand resumes to a thousand different customers. Right. But now digitally, it's so easy to do mm -hmm. that almost a hundred percent of people just try to blanket things. And so it's just not compelling for any employer, right? What you're looking for is like passion. Like, do you know, do you, do you really know who I am? Do you know who our company is? Do you know why we do the things we do the way we do them? So, you know, if I had some advice for somebody who's looking for a job and coming right out of school, it, it certainly would be don't pick more than five places. I would say three that you really want to work, figure out what those places are, why it is that you really want to be there and learn as much as you can. And then like that woman in the story that you mentioned, go hard at it. Like if you know them, they are going to be flattered by that. If you know why you should be there and why other people are there, they're going to be flattered by that. But they're, but they're also going to appreciate that, that you're not looking everywhere. Um, there's nothing that's more of a turnoff than when you can tell that someone has sent the same thing to 50 other places. And even without even without the mistake of you know actually <laughs> hey Ken too. I really love I love your agency and I love the work and I'm so passionate about being at your shop Ken um, you know even without those mistakes you could tell but that's the irony with it and and this is sensitive Alex and it's going to seg into a version of the show that we take we're, we're going to be starting in a few weeks where we offer you know real time job interviews and we make a person vulnerable and mm. pair them up kind of on a blind date with a person yeah. but. I don't want to make you vulnerable to getting a thousand emails after this show airs or a thousand resumes on your desk. But suppose someone is indeed mesmerized by the Alex Boguski story and sees you on LinkedIn, goes back and pulls up all the fortune in New York Times and Fast Company profiles and is hell bent on uh, bringing you your LaCroix water just for two or three years just to get the chance to work with you, <laughs> just to get that chance like, here, kid, uh, here's the ball. Uh, why don't you take a few snaps? How do you break through to somebody like you and your cohorts in the field? Because certainly you must admire that having been a person who, you know, had to break through and had to convince people. It's like their first ad pitch to you. I cannot yeah. imagine kind of pitching an ad exec for a job. Well, the there is no answer. And so sometimes what people do is they, I'll give you an example of two candidates. We have a new uh, internship that we just launched. And, and one candidate through LinkedIn reached out and um, I do try to answer things, but I don't answer everything. So if you're out there, I may not answer, but I try to, but I'm not perfect at it. He reached out. Um, we were going back and forth. And his essential question was, how can you guarantee that if I spend the time to actually make a video that I'll get in? And he just kept asking it over and over in different ways. You know, well, I've noticed that people don't always look at those things. Okay, but we will. Um, I've noticed that like people say they want something different, but do they really? Well, I don't know. We want something excellent. If it's different but not excellent, we probably won't like it. So we went back and forth like this. And then another candidate sent me a box in the mail with their one show pencil that they had won as in a student competition and said, I, I want, I want to trade this for, for being part of the internship. Now that one was much more compelling. The second one, 
because they actually use snail mail for one thing, which I don't even know if most millennials know how to do that. Um, I don't even know how to do that anymore. Uh, and, uh, and they gave something that was, of, I mean, it, this is their one show pencil. This is an actual thing that I, it's gotta be incredibly dear to them. I'm being really careful that you, we know where it is. I said to my assistant, I'm like, we have to get this back to this young man. Like, um, so those are two different approaches. And, and you could, you, I believe that the latter is going to work out better. But the barriers to entry now are minimal. You're talking about, you know, back to the future, going back to snail mail and the handwritten letter. How do I get through? Yeah. Like, do I have to dress up as a smoldering cigarette and streak a Denver Broncos game and hope you're watching, post it to YouTube, to Insta? Again, there's so much saturation, and you've, you've talked about this. There's a just big yeah. part of you that wants to turn it off. And indeed, I heard that you descend into the woods and shut everything off, right? <laughs> For sure. I think that, well, we just had a, we just had a, a uh, a, a guy who did a deep fake where he he basically put my face on his body and made me review him as a candidate um, and, that, and say that, wonderful that things didn't about weird his you work. out that didn't want you getting a restraining oh. order I mean that you know it's funny there is there definitely is a line there between restraining order <laughs> and like a and a follow-up call <laughs> and I don't know where the line is but uh we we did a call with him and we met him and you know it's it's a difficult person to hire but the, but they showed off some skills and some and the ability to break through and and uh and get attention so uh but uh yeah there's visa issues and all that but i think that's it's it's not very different than what the job is right um can you get my attention um and uh and and if you do it if you do it in the typical ways, uh, and if you do it in the easy ways, it's pretty easy for for anybody. I'm not really talking about me now. I think anybody in a position where they're where they're uh, looking for great people, um, the easy ways just just aren't don't reveal anything. With bad crazy ventures, which we mentioned before, we only look at uh, at snail mail. So we actually eliminated the ability for you to contact us as a venture capital firm in any way other than snail mail. Well, incidentally, sir, you didn't return. I, my emails or my overtures <laughs> over LinkedIn. I had to find an intermediate. It's like, hey, Mr. Foguski, look at me. Look at me. Will you come on my show? I cannot oh. I cannot thank you enough, sir. Alex Boguski. I apologize for that. No, you are forgiven. You 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 dealt with me for an hour and all these questions. It's a, it's an honor. You have to catch some of these histrionics on LinkedIn. I can't believe I'm I'm recommending LinkedIn uh, so uh, nice videos, but it's yeah, that's that's the world we're kind of in. Like, don't don't look for him on Twitter or Insta. Look for him on LinkedIn. Alex Boguski, co-founder, chief creative engineer at Crispin Porter and Boguski. Thank you so much. You are always welcome on this show. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Full disclosure: our engineer is John Valentine. Catch this show on NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News on NPR.org and the exquisite NPR One app, which I will not drive without. Uh, you iTunes users can subscribe at linkfulldradio.com. We are broadcasters of record, programmatically targeted mid-rolled purveyors of highly click-through MP3s. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>